this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. If you take people at their word, there is an unease about us. There's a disquieting about us. People believe the country is on the wrong track, but honestly, that may be a metaphor for just believing that they themselves are on the wrong track. So how do our thoughts dictate our emotions? How do our emotions dictate our actions? How do we reclaim control over our own destinies? That's what I want to talk about today, and I'm going to talk about it with Dr. Anita Phillips, who lives and works And I love the way that she has phrased what she does. She lives and works at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health. We could actually spend about an hour just thinking about what that means to live and work at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health. So there seems to be a crisis, at least to me, at each one of those stop signs a crisis in our country, potential crisis. But, you know, we only get one shot at this gift called life, just one. So why not find out what we can do to make our one shot at life as significant and rewarding as possible? So let's find out how. Welcome, Dr. Anita Phillips, author of the, I guess, I won't say brand new book, but certainly new book, The Garden Within. We'll start like this. You're more famous than I am because you, I watched you talk to a lady named Oprah who doesn't even know I'm alive. So if she knows you're alive, you are more famous than I am. But for people who may not be familiar with your work, tell us who you are and how you got here. Wow. I'm Anita. I'm a preacher's daughter and... A social worker turned clinical therapist, turned trauma professional. And I got here because I had an older sister who had a severe mental illness and we didn't understand what was wrong with her. So my childhood was filled with questions and I've spent my life chasing those answers. That's the best way I can explain it. It seems as if faith, you're a preacher's daughter. I don't know whether you still have faith. You must. I mean, if you if you live at the intersection of that, you must. But it seems as if faith, church involvement is going down in our country. Why is that? Can it be reversed? Should it be reversed? And there's a difference, I guess, between faith and going to church, but maybe not. It is true that religious um, expression and church attendance seem to be going down, but spiritual openness is actually increasing. People are still thinking about, deeply convicted about, moved by questions about what we can't see, about what happens after we die, about why bad things happen to good people, why good things sometimes happen to bad people. We have a lot of questions and those questions are spiritual. So there's a lot of spiritual openness. And when we've had as much grief and loss and distressing change as we have in the last few years, those kinds of questions, they do multiply. And those questions are ultimately about how we should live our lives and what it means to be well and what should we pursue. And the culture answers a lot of those questions in its own way. And so the intersection of faith, mental health and culture, we're all actually living there, whether we realize it or not. All right. You write about the garden within. Mm-hmm. So, look, I didn't pay as close attention as I should have at church. I, I remember the Garden of Gethsemane. 
that was a tough place. Mm-hmm. I remember the Garden of Eden. I was supposed to be a perfect place until it was ruined. My grandmama said I had the devil within me. She never said I had a garden within me. And my three sisters would probably agree with my grandmother. What makes you think we have a garden within? And is it more like the Garden of Eden or more like the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, I started out looking at gardens within us because in my first neuroscience class as a grad student, I was struck by how much a neuron looked like a seedling. It was so striking that I felt like I couldn't just skip over it as a coincidence. Having grown up in this faith-infused family where gardens were talked about spiritually. And so I began to study how our biology mirrors the way that gardens thrive and the way that gardens die and the way that gardens are replenished and flourish again and found that that is a direct analogy And so the garden within us really refers to these billions of tiny plants that are our neurons and how they communicate with one another to create our reality. And it turns out that when you're looking at a plant, you need to pay attention to the soil where it's growing. It's called a plant. So you can't define it outside of where it's planted. And in the garden within, it turns out that our thoughts are actually planted in the soil of our hearts. Our emotional lives infuse our thoughts and nurture our thoughts the way that soil nurtures plants in a garden. So we've had it backwards in our our general understanding that thoughts create emotions, but emotions actually create thoughts. And that's not just my wild abstraction. The most modern neurobiology is bearing it out that we have been wrong. Our emotions are powerfully moving our entire lives from underground. All right. Well, that to me is fascinating. It is um, um, emotions first and then thoughts. Mm -hmm. And you, there's no one in the world who spent less time studying neuropsychology or science. I think I made a D in my last science class, but I can't recall for sure. So this is how naive I am. I tell folks, to let logic drive the car of their life and let emotions play the music. That's the way my lawyer mind works. Let logic drive. And then the emotions kind of play the music. But what you say is maybe I've got that wrong. Tell me, and I hope I do have it wrong. So tell me what led you to believe that it's really the emotion that is that is at the foundation of it. Emotion would be like the gas in that car. Nothing moves in our lives without a feeling, whether that feeling is excitement or frustration or uh, joy or fear. We don't move without emotion. We are always experiencing some state of what we in psychology call affect. That's the special word for emotion in our in our field. And it isn't just a thought process. We actually are seeing this in our neurobiological research because we have the capacity to dig deeper scientifically. And so our autonomic nervous system is where our emotional experiences begin. And it's called the autonomic nervous system because it is operating automatically. It's the reason your heart is beating right now, that your lungs are inflating right now. We don't think of that. 
Our autonomic nervous system is also where our emotional experiences begin. It pulls in information from the outside. Our body responds to the situation, sends signals up through our heart to our brain, and then we become conscious of it. We name it an emotion, but very often we don't become conscious of it, but it is still moving us. I used to work in fields known for conflict. Mm -hmm. There was just uh, in the courtroom, there's conflict between the prosecution and the defense attorney politics. It's just riddled with conflict. I actually don't like it very much. I don't, I don't like conflict, but seem to be surrounded by it. Fear makes more money than unity in our current culture. If we can just make people scared and angry, is that a flaw in our construction or do we, like prioritize the wrong things? How did we get there? I don't think it's a flaw in our construction. It is a flaw in our understanding. We see emotions as these powerful forces that are driving so much, yet we continue to try and fight them rather than become aware of them, embrace our understanding of them, and then move from that place. Does that make sense? We recognize that we in politics or in um, other difficult conversations around the family table can trade all these facts back and forth, but not see a mind changed. We can see all the data about whether Androids are better than iPhones, but whichever one your heart loves, you keep buying. There is a fundamental kind of understanding that we don't want people to be heartless. We'd rather they be mindless than heartless. If you really start looking at the big picture, we do understand that emotion is powering these things. And the reason that many conflicts don't get resolved is because we are trying to arm wrestle with the mind rather than reach a place of unity in heart, in emotional space first, and then solve a problem. Marriages, number one problem in marriages when those conflicts are breaking up a union. The counselor will say, I need you both on the same team. I want you to see the problem as the enemy and not one another, because once the hearts get on the same page, we can actually solve the problem. We really do understand this. We've just been told something different. And so we are rejecting a truth that I think we get on a gut level. All right. So if I if I wanted to embrace or entertain the very real possibility that I've been looking at it, maybe not quite correctly. I'm such a logic because, you know, in the courtroom, it's all facts. It is almost it doesn't really matter why someone does something in the courtroom. It just matters whether you did it. But that's not the rest of life. Mm. So if I wanted to harness or control or take advantage of this powerful thing called emotion, how would I begin to do it? Or is it already happening? And I just don't know it. It's already happening. And I'm wondering, and I'm not, I'm no lawyer, but I'm wondering if there really is a void of emotion in the courtroom. I have watched a whole bunch of CSI and law and order. And it does seem that opening statements are very much about starting to move the heart of a jury. It does seem to me that Bardeer is about excluding people who may be easily moved by your opponent's argument. It does seem to me that much research that shows some systemic um, leanings that bias courts and juries against different people are all based on what's happening underground. So I'm not sure that emotion is actually not in the courtroom at all. Would 
Does that sound logical? Well, it, it does, because I know we were kind of brought up to like strike. You mentioned Ward Iowa. We get to strike potential jurors. Thank you. I said it wrong. But yes. No, 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 no. You said it exactly correctly. OK, I thought I might have pronounced it's, it wrong. <laughs> no, Ward Iowa, Ward Iowa. It doesn't okay, matter. Got it. <laughs> you say it any way you want to say it. No, but between the two of us, chances are much greater that I'm wrong than you're wrong. Ward Iowa, Ward Iowa. It's when you question jurors and try to figure out what motivates them and their backgrounds, we used to strike people that were in sociology and psychology and actually therapy because we, <laughs> I mean I'm being honest with you we would strike them for that <laughs> we would strike them because we do not want them we want them just clinically almost without emotion applying the facts so we had very very different but however the courtroom is not life that is not life. We, right. we don't live on trying the role of emotion in how it moves people in wanting to strike people who you thought most obviously would think through the, that lens or would embrace that lens. But it's still happening. It's still happening. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I want to go back to this intersection. Faith, culture, mental health. If someone doesn't have faith. What do they do at that intersection? I mean, do they turn left, right, go straight? Does everyone have faith, but just in something? Am I like confining that word faith to something maybe too religious? Sure. So I like to think of faith as the combination of our spirituality and our religion. Spirituality is like the mannequin and religion is like the outfit you put on it, if that makes sense. So spirituality, we all have it. Those are questions about purpose. What is the meaning of life? Is there life after death? Are there gods, deities, angels? Are there beings that exist in a world that we cannot see? What is fundamentally moral and what is not? Those are questions that are spiritual because we pull them from the invisible realm and they are not things that we can prove with our five senses. And so in that way, human beings are special because we are driven to ask questions from the invisible realm and answer them. So you may have someone who says, I don't believe there's a deity. I don't believe there's life after the body dies, but I do believe we should treat people well. And this is a moral imperative. That's a spiritual perspective. And so we are we are spiritual as human beings. That's one of the things that differentiates us from other creatures. So I believe in that way we all have some element of faith. Some of us flesh that spirituality out through a religious framework, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, but we are all fundamentally spiritual. I do believe that. You know, when I heard you explaining that, it, it makes me go back and I used to wonder, I mean, we'll just focus on Christianity for a second. Whether people would follow the teachings of Christ, even if there were no reward at the end, mm. are you convinced enough that that is the right way to live life, that even if there's nothing on the other side of death, you would still do it? I love that question. It's a And I don't know where people seem wired to want to be immortal. We just the allure of living forever seems to be. I don't know. Maybe it's hardwired into us that we just it makes sense. Living things don't want to die. Yeah, especially when you have the kind of higher conscious awareness that human beings have to self-reflect. It's scary to think of ending. That's definitely scary. And we want power over that. And so we're interested in 
exploring that possibility. But I, I love the question that you asked about Jesus. And I think even in looking at how Jesus is presented in different cultural spaces, perfect example of the intersection between faith, mental health, and culture. If we just look at the American church, if you go to like a traditional black church, like I grew up in on a Sunday morning, and you go to a traditional white American, say Presbyterian church on a Sunday morning, you're going to see some very different expressions of the same religion. Why? The mannequin's shape is different, even though the outfit is the same. And so you will see a freer emotional expression in many traditional black churches than you will in many historical traditional Western white churches. And that doesn't change the Bible. It doesn't make Jesus someone different. It's the perspective, the worldview, the beliefs of the group about emotion, about body movement, all of these things that make the religions almost look like separate religions, but the spiritual perspective is different. And so that's one of the ways that culture and faith all intersect. But when it comes to mental health, the question is, what do I want to feel? How do I want to live a meaningful life? And what does it mean to be meaningful? In one culture, your individual power is what makes life meaningful. In another culture, it's the family system and the community that makes life meaningful. Those are two very different approaches to living. Those are two very different approaches to defining mental health. And so all of those come together to inform how we choose or want to live. But what we do all have in common is these bodies that we live in is the nervous system that we have, the heart, our biological heart, the brain that we have. And we have recognized that our autonomic nervous system is shaped by these environments to have certain expectations. And so we respond differently. And that's where our emotional life begins. It begins in the body, in this autonomic nervous system that then informs the thoughts that we're having, which then informs the decisions that we make. I could spend the next hour on that point you just made. Uh, I was uh, fortunate for a lot of reasons to go to more African-American churches um, growing up and professionally than most white people. And the level of specificity and detail in terms of Jesus meeting everyday needs was so much higher in churches of color than it was the one that I grew up in. We were more thinking about world peace and uh, these things that we really had no control over. And I remember there being spirituals about helping me pay my bills, help help me get through the week. It was incredibly practical. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this. I'm going to give you another chance to tell me I'm wrong, which you could write another book on all the things I'm wrong about. But. I prosecuted this man once. I'll spare you the details of the crime. It was awful. But he went to see a psychiatrist when he was four years old. He tried to stab his mother with a with a knife while she was feeding him. She took him to a psychiatrist. So he got this image of a little kid whose feet can't even hit the... He's in the waiting room. His feet can't even touch the floor. Now he's on trial for his life at this point. This is a death penalty trial. But the mental health expert said he was born with a bad brain and i'm trying to reconcile faith with like being born with a bad brain it's like you don't have a i mean is there like a choice do you have a chance if you're born with a bad brain i don't know can you be born with a bad brain we can absolutely be born with 
dysfunction in our bodies. We know that. We know that people are born with disabilities. We know that people are born with intellectual issues. Um, my older sister, who I mentioned earlier, tried to kill me and my mother and my grandmother with an axe when I was 12 years old. She started seeing things that weren't there as young as five, hearing voices by 10, waking up in the middle of the night screaming because she would see horrifying demonic um, figures standing over her bed in the room that I shared with her. Something was broken early on in her body. And I think one of the challenges we have is confusing mental illness and physical illness as two types of illnesses that come from different sources, like physical illness arises from within the body somehow, like heart disease or diabetes, and mental illness somehow comes from some other place and falls upon us. But if you just think about other things that we know about how people get sick, you'll understand mental illness is simply characterized characterized by the symptoms. So if it is in our emotions or our thoughts that the symptoms come up, that's a mental illness. When it's in our tissues and our cells that we can measure, we call that a physical illness. That's the only difference. So I am a trauma therapist and I have a book from which we diagnose mental illnesses called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the DSM-5 right now. And in that book, we have schizophrenia, which my sister had, but in that same book, we have dementia. Dementia is in that book because the primary symptoms of dementia are cognitive and affective in our thoughts and our feelings. And so I really want people to expand their understanding of how we view mental illness. Autism is in that book. These are things that affect our thoughts and our feelings. And so people can be born with and or develop disorders in their emotional and mental lives that are sometimes dangerous. You know, one of the hard things with my sister, and now this is the early 80s when she was young, we didn't have any understanding of mental illness at all, but my sister's symptoms did not elicit sympathy. She wasn't depressed and just can't get out of bed and, you know, we kind of felt sorry for her crying or just having bad dreams. She was aggressive. She tried to hurt us and she would run away from home and she would curse at my parents. You know, it was bad. And so when the symptoms don't elicit sympathy, we don't want it to be mental illness. We want it to be something else. But she was still broken. All right. Well, this is this is the hard question for me, maybe not for you. How do you not let something like that impact your faith? I mean, you're 12 years old. You've done nothing wrong. You've got a sibling trying to kill you. How do you reconcile that with a loving God and, you know, everything is going to work out well at the very end or whatever that verse is? How, how do you square all that? Um, as a young person, I couldn't square it. I struggled mightily and definitely had some years where I didn't believe that God existed because my parents were, were good people and they were praying really hard and she wasn't getting better. Um, but I had a very personal encounter with God when I was a college student, a friend of, who was also a pastor's kid took me to church with them, um, much to my protest, but I felt guilty for being so mad about being invited. So I went <laughs> and after the minister finished speaking, he asked to pray for me and he prayed some things that were kind of secrets of mine, like only God could have given him the words to pray. It was very specific. And I knew he didn't know me. I was in another state. I was at Amherst College in Massachusetts. I grew up in New Jersey. And being seen by God like that, having that kind of encounter, that changed me. 
And so I embraced that belief, not only that God exists, but that God could see me and that God cared about me. And so that brought me back into the relationship with God and the beginning of this very long journey to answer these questions. You know, we have often been presented an image of a God who's in control, but my view of God is a God who has dominion and that's different. The mayor is in control of a town. The president's in control of a country, but not really, right? But there's a system running where people sometimes make decisions that hurt other people. Our free will is not limited. And so we make decisions. And then sometimes people are sick and it manifests in ways that hurt other people. And it's awful. But we also can have the opportunity to heal people and to come into relationship with people and to increase the sense of meaning that people experience in their lives. And really, I just have found that the alternative, which is despair, is absolutely useless. It's absolutely useless. But the trauma that we experience is real. I mean, I couldn't sleep in a bedroom with the door open until I was in my 20s because my sister often saw those demon hallucinations standing in the doorway. And so I would sleep with the door closed until I was in my 20s and learned what trauma was and began to work on healing that. Um, it has given me compassion for people who are ill and their symptoms are not sympathetic because I know that that's what happened with my sister. And I have found out that with treatment, people can actually get better. And so I'm passionate about people getting treatment instead of um, waiting until they hurt someone uh, when they didn't want to. And of course, you have seen so many extremes. And so that's difficult, right? Being a lawyer or a prosecutor is be so hard, very much almost like being a pastor. We're overexposed to pain and we're not meant to experience that much pain. Social media is killing us because we know too much pain in a small period of time. We used to just know what happened in your neighborhood. Now you know what's happening on every continent. The pain overload is tremendous. And so I encourage people to try and limit their exposure to that. We weren't built for it. And it does make it harder for us to see the big picture, um, especially if you're looking for God. And so helping people with their mental health, helping people recover from trauma. In that course of that work, I often see people recover faith because they're able to see a bigger picture when they are not in as much pain. You know, Doc, you put your finger on it. When it's all you see, you think it's all that exists. Yes. When all you see is, I mean, imagine, I guess, being a pediatric oncologist. I mean, right. I, 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 a homicide prosecutor, uh, a trauma therapist. Chaplain I mean, who watches people die all day. Like it's all a day, every day. So, all right, you went to school longer than like anybody I've ever talked to. <laughs> Most of my friends didn't make it too far in school. So you do. Do you also do private practice? I mean, do you have to sit there? I don't want to say have to. Do you listen to people say this happened to me when I was 12 and I cannot? You know, there are lots of crimes that people don't get over, but sexual assault would certainly be one of them. So. You do that also, in addition to being an author, your private practice? 
I do do that also. My practice is much smaller now. I only see about five clients at a time because I'm writing, because I'm traveling and speaking and ministering and teaching. I'm also a full-time professor, but um, I started out doing this constantly as the first four years of my practice was dedicated to working with adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And I ran counseling groups for them. So I listened to the stories of their abuse in detail for the first four years that I was in this work. And um, it was vicariously traumatizing. I mean, I am a sexual assault survivor myself, but to listen to the details of that type of abuse um, was vicariously traumatizing in the beginning, but I was able to work through that and become resilient. And what happened for me was seeing people heal and get better became addictive. And so I have a, what I like to call a Harriet Tubman mission. I will go into the dark. I know the way out. I am going to get you there if you trust me. And one of the reasons that I don't burn out when in doing that work is because I know that people can heal. And so I can handle the painful part of the process, much like a midwife watching a woman give birth. She's in pain, but we're going somewhere. And so that's how I feel about doing my therapy work with people who have survived trauma. Um, I'm working now with a mother who had a child who was killed in one of the well-known mass shootings in this country. I've been working with her for two and a half years. And I can tell you, she was the first client that I was ever reluctant to take in my 20 years of work, because that's such an incredibly deep, painful, senseless, everything loss. But, you know, Trey, here's the thing. She looked for me and I thought if she's looking for me, then she has some belief somewhere inside that things can get better for her. And if she has that belief, then who am I to say that I can't handle that work? So we dove into it together and she is thriving compared to where she was two years ago now. And so the fact that we can heal from this and make changes in this world, it keeps me inspired all the time because healing is possible. And I think if we saw that as much as we saw the pain, it might balance things out for people, but we are not meant to absorb the kind of terror that we're exposed to in our everyday lives. It is absolutely overwhelming us. Just like there may be bits of toxic chemicals, maybe some tiny micrometer of it in a fruit that grew in, a, in soil, we would survive. But if you're eating fruit that's grown from groves where there was a terrible chemical spill, that is going to overwhelm that fruit. That's kind of how we're living now. We are overwhelmed by trauma. We can handle little bits of pain as humans, but man, we really have to stop taking in so much. It's and I wonder when we will conclude that enough is enough. I uh, just, I wonder how many dead school children will finally be enough. And apparently we're not there yet, but... I tell you, when Sandy Hook happened and that didn't change everything, I lost some hope in the systemic changes that we need. But we still keep fighting anyway, because if we save one child, one life, we've done something incredible. Can never let the importance of saving one stop me from working to save more. And so we keep pushing, but it is terrifying. And it goes back again to emotion. What is moving people? What is motivating people? Because just on paper, you look at deaths and you want to make a difference. But what emotion would keep me protecting something else 
so that we don't make the changes that save lives. It's It has to be built in deep in order for us to not be making moves that are perfectly logical. It's because our emotions drive us. And when we get those our hands on that and we can get our, our arms around that, I think we'll start to be able to make some of the changes that we need, starting with ourselves. I remember sitting at church a Sunday after Sandy Hook and they played the names of the kids on the overhead screen. And you could just, it, it's something to see a name and know that that person is now dead, but to see the name and the age. Yes. You know, name, age six, name, age seven. And I, like you, thought this is it. But for some reason, maybe we're wired to not want to stay in a state of pain. It's almost like those of us who can move on, the parents cannot. They cannot. I mean, there's not a day in the world that they don't think about it. But it's almost like we're not wired to want to dwell on that kind of anguish. So we just move on and therefore nothing happens. Well, we have seen something happen in other countries. So I'm not sure that that's a blanket statement. We have seen things happen in other countries. And so the human capacity to make the change so that we don't see it again, that's the way to move on. But in cultures where the repression of emotion is especially emphasized, maybe you're giving an example of a problem with that. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Grief. I guess it's an emotion. Maybe not. I mean, you're the expert. You know, grief is grief is an emotion. It's a blend of emotions. It's the experience that we have when we lose something or someone um, or some place, like a refugee, that means the world to us. We grieve loss. We grieve disconnection. It has sadness at its core because sadness is a hunger pain for connection. And that's what I want to explain about emotion, especially emotional pain. These are hunger pangs for things that humans need. We need connection and sadness is a pang for connection. We need value. And anger is something that we experience when we have not received that value or something's been devalued. That's important. And fear is a hunger pang for safety. Humans need food, water, and air, but we also need connection, value, and safety to thrive. And so grief is a blend of sadness, anger, and fear. The sadness is that core emotion in it, but there's also anger and fear that gets in that. And anyone who's ever grieved deeply can really hear me when I say emotion is not a thought product. It is a bodily experience because that's where grief is living. Um, I have a very close friend whose sister died a year ago yesterday and leading up to those days, even before the anniversary came back, she started feeling in her discomfort in her body. And many people can identify with that. We call it an anniversary reaction. It's not your thoughts. It's not your conscious mind. And then suddenly you're like, oh, that's why I've been feeling like this all week. This is the month my mother died, or this is the week I lost my child. And so that's a wonderful insight into how emotions are living real in our bodies not coming from our thoughts. And so grief is absolutely an epidemic right now. It's an epidemic right now because of coming out of the pandemic, for example, hundreds of thousands of people 
million people died. On average, for each death, five people will grieve long-term. And so when you think about the numbers of people that have died in these last several years and multiply that by five, grief is an epidemic right now. Mental health, mental wellness is being um, undermined. And so mental illness and emotional distress is an epidemic right now. And we don't have the mental health professionals that we need to help people, but we also don't have the societal structures in place that we need for people to heal. And so people are grieving alone. Loneliness is an epidemic right now. And loneliness is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Don't tell me emotions, not a bodily experience. It is. And that's not the result of thinking. It's something that my body needs that it's not getting connection with another person, value and safety. And we get those things in relationship. So we're not thinking that up. We feel it. And then it affects our thoughts. The numbers on loneliness, particularly among young women, Mm -hmm. are alarming and staggering. And then you couple with that, uh, those who are willing to entertain the thought of hurting themselves, of ending their lives. And you mentioned connection, that we're wired for connection. And 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 yet people tell us we're more connected than we've ever been. I, it must be a different kind of connection because I don't consider my phone to be like a real connection. With exactly. People. Exactly. We're more linked than we've ever been. We have more access to information than we've ever had. But I don't think we're more connected than we've ever been. I worry about, I mean, I I have a daughter who's 25, so she's a little bit out of that teen, but I worry about, especially teen girls. Mm -hmm. It is, I mean, the numbers on loneliness and feeling isolated are like epidemic. It's an epidemic because they're being presented images of perfection that are unattainable. And so even when they're together, people feel isolated or lonely because they feel like they don't belong, they don't fit in, they're not measuring up because they don't look a certain way or they don't have these clothes or they're not wearing this makeup. Their social media life is not as pretty as someone else's. And so that way, even when you're with people, you can feel alone because you don't think you measure up. And so it's extremely dangerous to our mental health. But that, again, that can't be solved with positive thinking. That is a connection level, heart level, emotion level challenge. And it is disturbing sleep. It's lowering immune systems. People are getting sick. Can't think your way out of that. You have to feel your way through it and into relationship with people that's healthy. Those needs for connection, value, and safety must be met for us to thrive. There's well-known research that was done in orphanages around the world with children and babies in cribs that when they were not touched outside of having their diaper changed or being fed, that the children did not develop well physically or cognitively, and in extreme cases, even died. That's how important our emotional lives are. And so we must take better care of ourselves and each other. If we're going to see our health improve, our family systems improve, our nation improve, I'm definitely not here to give you just a kumbaya message, but this is a biological reality. I bet some people listening right now are still absorbing the fact that I said that it's been found that loneliness is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It shortens lifespan. You can't think your way out of that. I'll tell you who's not doubting that. That we need who? 
people who have been lonely. Yes. They're <laughs> exactly. not down again. They're actually it, probably feeling validated right now that what is happening to them is real. And this is another reason why I am so grateful to be in faith communities. There are some beautiful faith communities out there. I know there's some scary things happening in church, but there are some beautiful faith communities out there. It's one of the last places in the world where anyone is welcome where anyone will be embraced. Whereas I'm sure you saw in many of the black churches you visited in other churches of color, you're gonna get hugs and hand-holding and we need to be touched. This society has an incredible dearth of non-sexual touch. So if people are not in romantic or sexual relationships, they can be going days without being touched. And that is bad for our health as well. And so faith communities are some of the last places where just anyone can come in and receive a welcome. And we need that so much. Can I ask you a social media question? Please. Test a theory I have. You're going to think I'm crazy if you don't already think that. You will by the end of this. I have this rule that I don't care what someone who doesn't know me thinks about me. I just don't care. I don't know if it was Martin Lawrence. I don't know who said it, but I was watching a movie. If you don't know me, don't judge me. And then I thought, why would a 15 year old care what someone who never has met him or her thinks about him or her? Is it this need for affirmation that we feel? I mean, to be affirmed by somebody who knows you is one thing, but be to be affirmed by someone who like has never met you. I don't see the value in that. Well, for one, teenagers are still forming their identity. Uh, their brains are still forming. Their emotions are still um, cementing. Everything is is wet. The cement is wet <laughs> when you're 15. And so almost anybody can write something in wet cement. And so we need to recognize how vulnerable that age bracket is. But also social media has made the world small. And so, yeah, if someone from across the ocean makes a negative comment uh, and someone you know does see it and gets on board with it, the conversation is small. It may seem like we don't know each other, but we are interacting with each other. And so if a 15-year-old posts something and a million people from around the world like it, that is going to make them feel great, even though they don't know the people who liked it. Well, if we can be encouraged by people we don't know, why wouldn't we be able to be wounded by people we don't know, and especially a child? Yeah. I, like I said, you're going to think I've lost my mind before. No, I think we come from a different generation. And so it's almost hard to understand what it's like for this generation. I've been born into this. You know, like so your kids are in their 20s. My kids are that age too, 21 and 26. So the social media hit them in like high school, but they already had some, some basis. But this generation that was born into this, my God, it's hard for us to conceive what this experience really is like for them. They're living in a reality that we have never experienced. But just taking pieces of it. Like I said, I am so blessed by the response that I've gotten to my book. I, I get to cry at least once a day from someone sending me a DM about how it freed them in some way. That means the world to me, even though I don't know them. If I were getting a message every day about how awful I was, that probably would be hard. And I'm not 15 and it hasn't been happening since birth. So they are living in a reality that is incredibly dangerous 
And we have to get our hands on it in order to help them figure out how to thrive in that space because it's not going away. I think you're right. I'm old enough to know to limit the channels of input. I, right. I limit the amount of information that comes to me, but I'm also not on social media. I mean, that's a choice. Can I ask you about two other emotions mm-hmm. or what I think are emotions? And you can tell me that I'm wrong. Guilt. The people that are imprisoned by guilt over something that happened 20 years ago, it just is that an emotion? What What is guilt? Guilt is an emotion, and it's primarily a form of sadness as well. So I see sadness, anger, and fear as kind of the primary colors of emotional pain. And then there's all kinds of mixtures that we make from there. But guilt is largely a form of sadness. And that's an emotion we feel when we know we have done something wrong. What people sometimes confuse guilt for is shame. Shame is another kind of emotion. It's sadness with fear in it. Not only do I feel that I maybe have done something wrong that's disconnected me from other people. Remember I said sadness is about disconnection, but then the fear that something's wrong with me mingled into that gives us shame. And many people will carry shame for a long time. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. And when people experience abuses, especially in their childhood, shame can be written into that cement and it can be very difficult to get out by yourself. That's one of the things that we like to do on, in, the, in the therapy room is to help people um, pour in fresh cement because shame says, I'm not good enough. Why didn't my mom love me? Why would my dad abuse me? Why would a teacher tell me that I'll never be anything? And it is... I can say, I think probably the hardest part of being a therapist, like for you as a prosecutor, seeing the things that do people do to people, for me, hearing the things people say to people, it's, an, it's incredible the horrible things that people say to people, especially to children. And so we can absorb that shame and carry that narrative for a lifetime. I'm not lovable. I'm not safe. I'm not powerful. I'm not a good enough. And it becomes a narrative and it's many people try to change their mind about it but it doesn't fix their heart about it. Because again, thoughts are plants growing in the garden. The emotions are running through the soil. You can pull up a plant, but the soil will still be fertile for it. That's what it is with our emotions and our thoughts. That's why you can have um, all these anxious question thoughts, like how do I solve this problem? How do I solve this problem? People are up at 2 a.m. Googling, clicking links they've already clicked, still looking for more information, thinking that they can solve the problem that way. But actually, if they were able to just work through the fear that's watering the questions, the questions would go away. And so shame is an emotion that can continue to water a lot of plants in our lives. I want people to pull the plants and work on their thoughts, but until we transform how we feel emotionally and meet the need that that emotional pain is asking for, your thoughts will continue to be difficult. You mentioned Jesus earlier, who's somebody I just adore. Could I tell a story about him? Of course. One of the things that started me on this journey about emotion was I noticed how incredibly emotionally expressive Jesus was. Jesus did not hold back expressions of emotional pain. He cries outside the tomb of Lazarus. 
he flips tables in the temple, whips people, has a fit because people are not treating the temple with value. They're changing money instead of changing lives there. And he got furious. And then we see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, where a lot of us feel like we spend our emotional time. And he is weeping and crying really loud and asking God to give him a break. Jesus is experiencing fear in the garden of Gethsemane. And he doesn't ever hold it back. And he never repents for it. And I think that's a really powerful image of Jesus that we don't look at. But if emotions were the result of our thoughts, that would mean that Jesus didn't think well, that something about his mind was bad at that time. And my faith tells me that Jesus' mind was good. There's a scripture that says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And so for me as a person of faith, And I wanted to get to share that because I think a lot of people listening might have grown up in Christian traditions and and do see Jesus as someone to aspire to be like. And Jesus expressed his emotional pain clearly. He expressed his needs for relationship clearly, for safety. He prayed for that. Jesus was a really emotional guy, but his mind was perfect. He had a lot of feelings. The reason he felt those things is because he had the same body that we have. Emotions are bodily experiences that inform our thoughts, not thought products. And when we are honest emotionally, we have an opportunity to connect deeply. And I think that's why so many of us connect deeply with Jesus. Well, Doc, the last thing in the world I'm going to do is get into a sword drill with you about Bible verses or stories from the Bible, because I would lose. Do you even remember what a sword drill is? We used uh, to call those- oh, arm. Charged with can, the Bible? Yeah, did who you, can you find know? the verse the quickest? And I'm yes. sitting here trying oh, to. I, yes, we did those too. Yeah, I'm trying <laughs> I to. I forgot about think. those. I forgot about those. But you know, but it's not that one isn't a duel of verses. I think we all know these stories about Jesus. We just haven't looked at them that way. You know? But there are two more that I thought yes. of. Yes. The ability to say, my God, my God, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? By the way, his mom was still there. His he mom never was right there. He never asked his mom that question, but he did ask, "My mm-hmm. God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And he also, Doc, he touched people that he healed, even though he didn't have to. He could have healed them. He healed people from long distances away. Yeah, but he touched the guy on his eyes. Mm-hmm. He did not have to touch. He didn't. So I think. I'm going to give you a chance as we uh, – there are two things I want to ask you. Number one, I want to ask you, with all the things you have going on in your life, who did you write this book for? Who Who is the ideal person mm. that needs to pick this up and read it? And then uh, that's my first question. My second question is this. I want you to go back in time before you were born, probably 40 years ago. Uh, my, <laughs> my sister uh-huh. read a book about Ted Bundy, of all the dumb things in the world to do. She read a book about a serial killer right before she was going to an outdoor camp. And so she's my older sister. She called me in there. She was terrified. And I spent all my time trying to get her to look at it logically. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't know where this camp is that he's actually incarcerated right now. He's not going to break out. What should I have said? So those are my two questions. I tend to make people think through things logically too much. Mm -hmm. 
And who listening did you write this book for? Mm. I wrote this book, I think, first for families like mine uh, who had questions around faith and suffering and wanting to understand how those can link together and still incorporate the scientific knowledge that we have. And so that was my inspiration, but also for people who just have questions about pain in this life, about what it means to be well, what it means to suffer and what it means to recover. And so I wanted it to be open enough to incorporate faith, but also pragmatic enough with the science and actually how we can improve our experiences with our emotions in ways that clear our mind and empower our actions. So I guess in that way, I guess I wrote it for everybody. <laughs> guess I wrote it for everybody because I think we all want to be better right now. Well, you will not meet a more cynical person in your life than the guy you're currently talking to. I don't believe that because you're still asking questions. And, and yet doing I benefited <laughs> dramatically from your book. Ah. I, I really did. I, I'm I'm sitting there reevaluating my approach. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's why I wanted to have you on. If you can get someone who is so jaded uh, and cynical to sit there and think, well, maybe you've been looking at this the wrong way. Maybe you have been. So I want you all, the book is The Garden Within. It's Dr. Anita Phillips. You look on the back, you'll see one of the more beautiful smiles you've ever seen in your life. Someone who looks very, very happy, if that is right, the word. I don't know if happy is an emotion or not, but it is. <laughs> is it? All right. Well, I got that part right. We, uh, we have a mental health crisis in our country right now. It's kind of hard to believe on the one hand, we have so much abundance here, and yet People are just, there's a disquieting about people. I would tell you to give this book, give this book a try. And if you're not where you want to be in life, I mean, first of all, what's it going to hurt? I tell you what, you may wind up like me. You may like look at things differently from the way you did before you picked it up. I love it. Thank you. God bless you. And thank you for sharing your expertise and your life experience too, which cannot be easy. I, I cannot imagine growing up the way you described growing up. Now, let me ask finally your parents, are they still with us? And they, they are, they are. My dad is 83. My mom is 80. They're still pastors in New Jersey. And um, I believe this book has been a tremendous blessing to them, them coming into the opportunity to understand mental illness and recognize that they weren't just somehow failing as parents, um, their embrace of their journey and being able to still maintain their faith in the process. Um, it's been a beautiful thing to see. Dr. Anita Phillips, the book is The Garden Within. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us on this Tuesday edition of our podcast. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.